uh, I was really uh, sad to miss. I was, um, I remember the last two Sundays I've been thinking about uh, not being here. You know, I was worshiping somewhere else, a church that I was uh, preaching at or, uh, or out hiking. And so I was, I was sitting there on a Sunday morning, not here. And I was, it, that was the first thing on my mind is that this is, this is different and it's not as good. Like I miss worshiping with you guys. And so hopefully you guys missed me too, a little bit, but not too much, right? Uh, if either one of those extremes is probably not good. If you didn't miss me at all and you're like, oh man, Britain's back, you know, that's probably not a good sign. But if it's the other side too, and you're, you really missed me and you don't know how church could go on without me, that's also probably not healthy. And so hopefully you missed me, but not too much. Um, but I'm really glad uh, to be back here with you guys, worshiping with you. Uh, uh, Steve and Gordy did a great job proclaiming the word the last two weeks, faithfully teaching scripture. And they actually wrapped up our series uh, to Judea. Remember, the, the book of Acts, which, as, which we're walking through, is broken up into three distinct sections. There's the portion where they're in Jerusalem. There's a portion where they scatter to Judea and Samaria. And then there's the portion that focuses mainly on Paul, where they go out to the ends of the earth. Uh, kind of broken up on Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that's how the book of Acts is broken up. And so we uh, finished our to Judea section of the book of Acts. And so we're going to take a short break for the book of Acts. We'll come back after Easter. Uh, but over the next five weeks, what I want us to look at is our gathering. I want us to begin a series called The Gathering because I want us to look at what the Bible says about our assembly on Sunday morning. What does the Bible teach about what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to be like when we gather or assemble here on Sunday mornings? If you're like me uh, and you, you've grown up in church, if you've spent any amount of time in church, you think that, you know, we just do church because that's, that's the way it's supposed to be done, right? That's how, that's how we've always done it. So we're just going to keep doing it this way, right? We sing five songs on Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning here, that's got to be the right number, right? Biblically, five, right? And, uh, and prayer somewhere mixed into the service. And, uh, and then the sermon uh, has to be uh, roughly this way. And uh, we have the Lord's Supper, and we eat the same wafers that they were probably, probably made by the apostles, you know? And so uh, like we, we have, the, uh, we have this, the system, the way that we serve, the way that we, we gather. And, and a lot of us, it's just tradition. That's just how we've done it. And so that's all that we think about it. But the Bible actually teaches about what our gatherings are supposed to be like. The Bible actually does have stuff to say about what our assemblies are supposed to be like. And it, it, we're not going to get into a lot of the details because the Bible doesn't, right? The Bible doesn't say how many songs to sing or what style of music to have or how long the sermon is. Sorry, it doesn't say that. Um, some of you may wish it does. But it, it doesn't have any scripture, any, any teaching on, on those minute details. But it does have teaching on what we're supposed to do when we gather and what our gatherings are supposed to be like. So that's what I want us to look at over the next five weeks. Is what, next five weeks, weeks is what do we do when we gather? What are our assemblies supposed to be like? Hebrews chapter ten, beginning in verse nineteen, is where we're going to be this morning. Hebrews chapter ten, beginning in verse nineteen, says this: Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I want to tell you a story about a church. Uh, And just as a disclaimer, uh, this isn't one particular church that I have in mind. This is a story of a, a, a pretty popular story of churches that I've either been a part of or that I've seen or that I've talked to other pastors about. Uh, and so this is a pretty typical story of a church. And, and this may sound familiar to some of you, either from a church that you've been a part of. You may, you, you may think I'm describing the church that you've been a part of, um, not this one, but uh, they, this may sound familiar to some of you. But there's a church, and it's thriving. Right? It is the place to be in the local community. You, you can go to any street in the neighborhood. You can knock on a door, and, and it won't take you very many doors until you find a member of this church, right? Like it's, it's a good place to be in the community. It's the popular church uh, to be at, and, and the ministry is thriving, right? The budget is growing. The, the ministries are expanding, and, and more and more people are becoming part of the church. There's a, there's a tangible excitement in the church, and, and people are happy and excited to be there uh, because the ministry is going really well. This is the place to be in the community. This is the church uh, to be a part of. And then, eventually, things slow down a bit. Right? They, they, they aren't growing quite as fast as they used to, or they begin to, to plateau, or even they lose a couple people. But, but things are still going well. Things are still run smoothly. Nothing has really changed. But, uh, but you can tell that the excitement's a, a little gone. Right? There's not quite as much of a tangible anticipation of what's happening here. Um, it begins to begins to settle down and die down, and then, and then the pastor makes a change. Right? The, the pastor changes something, and the church doesn't like it. Maybe it's the music ministry. Right? <laughs> the pastor makes a change to the, to the music ministry, or they make a change to the small groups, or make a change to, to something in the church, but a, a change is made, and there's a portion of the church that becomes convinced that the church is going in the wrong direction. Right? They hate the change. And they think the church is, is trending in the wrong direction. They don't like it. And so what do they do? Well, because it's a church, both sides get together and they talk it over and they understand each other and they see the other side and they have a peaceful resolution. They respond to each other amicably and they resolve the problem, right? No, it's a, it's a, that's not how churches usually operate, right? They fight. <laughs> they argue and everything becomes a battleground. Right? They fight over the color of the carpet in the, the worship center and a renovation project. They fight over, two story, the toilet paper in the bathroom, which is a big deal, right? Yeah. One ply, two ply, half a ply, you know, whatever we have. Like, it's a big deal. But they, uh, they start fighting over everything. And Sunday morning, the gathering then becomes a war zone. Right? You walk into the worship center and you can see people in a corner having a heated discussion about something in the church. And you look over in another corner and people are, are also arguing about things going on in the church. And, and people are picking sides. People are drawing lines. People are fighting. And the church is a battleground. And eventually, a portion of the church just splits and leaves. But not before causing irreparable damage to the church that they're leaving. And leaving this church reeling from the loss of membership and the years of fighting and toxic environments and the church just can't cope. Stop me if this sounds familiar for some of you. Churches that you may have heard of or been a part of. What went wrong in the gatherings? The music's probably the same. Music didn't really go wrong. The, the preaching probably hasn't changed much. 
over the years. The, the programs, the way that they did things probably didn't change. The, the way that they did the Lord's Supper probably didn't change. So what changed? What went wrong in the gatherings? Well, their gatherings started to lack fellowship. Fellowship aspect of the gatherings was lost when they drew battle lines and decided to make Sunday mornings a war zone. An important part of our service together, an important part of our gathering on Sunday mornings is the fellowship. You, you may have, uh, know of churches, and our church used to do this, where you, you turn and you greet other people and you, you, know, you shake their hands and say, really glad you're here this morning. Well, we still have that fellowship time. In fact, for us, um, that fellowship time was moved to the front of the service where we put the timer on the screen, say there's five minutes left. That's meant to be a cue for everybody to say, if there's anybody here that you didn't talk to yet, go talk to them before the service starts. Like, go interact with them. Go have that time of fellowship. With them. We have that time of fellowship in our church, in our congregation when we gather. In fact, the fellowship is really one of the biggest reasons of why we gather. It's kind of the overarching theme of our gatherings. It's that we fellowship together. Our name is Freedom Fellowship, right? That's what we do. <laughs> our gatherings are meant to have a time of fellowship with one another, and so many times our fellowship can go wayward. And, and the fellowship time becomes just a formality just a surface-level conversations or something that we skip altogether. But the biblical understanding of our gatherings is that we are to have fellowship, true fellowship with one another. This is what I want us to take away this morning. The gospel compels us to meet for one another. The gospel compels us to gather for one another. There are three things that we need to do when we gather there are three things that we need to do as we fellowship when we gather. The first thing is this. Number one thing we need to do is we need to share a common faith. Share a common faith. Look with me in verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have great High priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In order to understand this text, we really have to do a kind of a crash course, Cliff Notes version of the book of Hebrews up to this point. The writer of Hebrews up to this point is breaking down the Old Testament law. He's pointing out all of the Old Testament systems, the sacrifices, the temple, the, the law, everything that they're doing. And, and the, old, the, the writer of Hebrews is pointing out that Jesus is better than all of those things. So the writer of Hebrews starts out saying Jesus is better than angels. He points out that says Jesus is better than the sacrifice, uh, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He points out that Jesus is better than the high priests. Like Jesus is better than all of these things. That's kind of the argument throughout the book of Hebrews. And here in Hebrews chapter 10, he brings us back to a picture of the temple, the place where the Israelites worshipped back in the Old Testament. And this temple was made up of several rooms, but the inside room, the middle room, was called the Holy of Holies. It's the place where the Ark of God rested. It's the, this gold box that hold, held the Ten Commandments and, and a few other items. And it was said that God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies, that God's, the fullness of God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies. It was meant as a, a representation, a picture of heaven being in the fullness of the presence of God. God was there in the middle of the temple, in the, in the fullness of his presence. And so because of that, they roped off the, the Holy of Holies. 
and they draped huge curtains over the room. And nobody could go in. Nobody could enter into the Holy of Holies. Because God was holy, God was perfect, God was righteous, and not a single one of us are. (laughs) Not one of us could go into the Holy of Holies and stand in the presence of God. In fact, only one person could go in, and it was one time a year. The high priest would offer a bunch of sacrifices, the blood would cover over him, and he'd walk in there, he'd fill the room with smoke, and he would walk in there and he'd sprinkle some blood on the, the Ark of God, and then he'd walk back out because nobody could be in the presence of God. And what the writer of Hebrews tells us up to this point is that that signifies the fact that the way to God, the way to have a relationship with God is, was not open at that point. The writer of Hebrews is signifying is that all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, all of the, the laws, all of the rules, all the regulations, not one of those things could make people right with God. Not one of those things could open up the door to relationship with God. Not one of those things can provide eternal life. All of those things were insufficient, and the curtain remained between God and his people. A barrier remained between the presence of God and his people. And that, that's true for us. Just like the Israelites, you and I are broken, messed up people. We have sinned and fallen short of God's standard of perfection. Not one of us has done everything right. If God gave us a list of rules to follow, at some point in our lives we would break at least one, if not multiple of those rules. And we know that because every single one of us has fallen short of God's standard of perfection. So none of us can walk into the presence of God. Not one of us can just have eternal life and dwell forever in the presence of God. The Bible says that all of us, because of our sin, are under the wrath of God and we deserve eternal separation from God in hell. Because a barrier remains between us and a holy God. And we cannot dwell in his presence. We cannot enter in. But let me remind you what happened when Jesus died on the cross. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. And he gave up his life on a cross. His, His blood poured out as a sacrifice for us. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, the the curtain that was in the temple tore from top to bottom. Then Jesus died and he breathed his last. That curtain tore down the middle and it showed and it signified that the way to enter into a relationship with God was opened. The way to have a relationship with God, the way to receive eternal life and peace and joy and satisfaction from the Lord, the way had had been opened to us. And the writer of Hebrews says, he made a new way for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. He opened up for us an opportunity to have eternal life, to enter into his presence by his flesh. His death and his, his resurrection opened that door. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in verse 22, because that's true, because we need salvation in Jesus, because we need eternal life from God, because we need our relationship with God to be restored, because we need to be forgiven of our sins, the writer of Hebrews tells us, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and a full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, the door is open, go in. Enter into the presence of God, receive eternal life. 
He says the way that we do that is with a true heart and full assurance of faith. It means that we can enter in to the presence of God. We can enter in and dwell and receive eternal life if we just put our faith in Jesus. If we come to the point where we recognize that we need him to open the door and we believe that by his death and his resurrection, he has done just that. And we can have a relationship with God. And he goes on to say that when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, we have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When we trust in Jesus, we are made right with God and we can enter into a relationship with him. We can receive eternal life, the joy and the peace that God provides. What we need to realize this morning is that our gathering is based on the gospel. Our gathering is based on that message. What unites us? What brings us together? Why are we here in the first place? It's because we are a people who have been set free by Jesus. We are a people who have entered in and have received eternal life from the Lord, who have received peace and joy and satisfaction from God that only he can provide. We are people who have been saved. It's the gospel that unites us. It's the gospel that brings us together. It's the gospel. That's the reason we're here. Our gathering is based on a common faith. Our gathering is not based on a common political affiliation. We're not here because we all vote the same way. Our gathering is not based on a common interest in music. We're not here because we like every note of every song that's sung. Our, our gathering is not based on programs or, or things that the church can offer us. We're not here because the church can give us something or provide something for us. We're here because we've been set free from sin and death by Jesus. And we are gathering together with other people who've been set free from sin and death and worshiping the Lord together. True biblical fellowship is a fellowship that shares a common faith. Some of you this morning, you need to heed what the writer of Hebrews is saying and you need to enter in. The rest of this conversation, the rest of this sermon is not Christian networking 101. Right? This is not how to, to have a good conversation with Christians, how to enjoy good friendships with believers. The, the rest of this conversation is irrelevant to you if you've never entered in. It doesn't matter how good or deep your friendships are with people in this room. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus and received eternal life from him, then what you need to do this morning is enter in. The door is open. I don't care if you've checked a card or you've walked an aisle and said a prayer or been baptized. None of those things on their, on their own save you. Have you placed your faith in? In Jesus, because those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus, Jesus changes everything for us. Our whole life is made different by Jesus. The whole trajectory of our lives change. If you can sit there and say that your, your life has not changed, your life has not been impacted by Jesus, you're not changed and made different because of your faith in him, then this morning what the writer of Hebrews is telling you to do is enter in. Join us in this common faith. Receive eternal life from the Lord. Enter in. Our fellowship needs to share a common faith. The second thing 
that we need to do is adopt an eternal focus. We need to adopt an eternal focus. Look with me in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The writer of Hebrews is bringing up a really good point here. And, and the point is that you have been promised eternal life by God. And you have received glimpses of it. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you've been, you've been, given, you've been brought to life. Your, your soul has been changed. The whole trajectory of your life has been shifted. And you have experienced tastes of the peace that God provides and the joy that he fills you with. And the hope and the life that you have, you experienced glimpses of eternal life, but you haven't experienced the fullness yet. We are still living in a world marred by sin. We are still living in a body that is, is broken and dying. We are still living in a body that is, is tempted and flawed. We are still living in a world that is imperfect. So we're not, we're not quite there yet. We haven't experienced the fullness of eternal life. And what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out is that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, we will receive and experience the fullness of eternal life in God. When Jesus comes back, he will make everything right. He will do away with sin and brokenness in the world. He will fix all of the injustices that come upon us. We, he, will face every, he will fix everything in the world and do away with sin and brokenness and rebels against him. And we will experience life, full life in God. But what we have today is the promise of that. What we cling to today is the hope of that day. What the writer of Hebrews says is cling to that hope. Hold fast to that confession of hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. If you have followed Jesus, if you place your faith in him, the most important thing about you is not the moment that you, uh, that you said a prayer or checked a card or been baptized. That's not the most important part of your life. That's not the most important thing about you. Because salvation is not some get-out-of-hell-free card. Right? It is not something that you, you say a prayer, or you check the box, or you get baptized, and then you're made right with God, and then you go on doing whatever you want to do, and live your life however you want, and then, then when Jesus comes back, you can go to heaven. Right? That's not salvation. That's not the full gospel. The full gospel is the fact that you will experience eternal life. That when Jesus comes back, you are a child of God and you will receive an inheritance in the kingdom of God. When Jesus comes back, you are part of the kingdom of God and you will dwell and remain in that kingdom for all of eternity. That's the gospel. And that's the most important thing about you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you will taste and experience the fullness of eternal life when Christ comes back. That's what's most important, not the fact that you said some prayer and got washed by pure water and, and your life is better now. It's the fact that one day you will experience the fullness of eternal life. So as a church, when we gather and we fellowship, we need to adopt that eternal focus. One that looks forward to that day. One that is excited about that day and anticipates that day. Knowing that that day will be the greatest day for us. A church that has an eternal focus, that is looking forward to Christ's return, is not a church that fights over carpet colors. A church that has an eternal focus is not 
a church that fights over the toilet paper. A church that has an eternal focus is not a church that fights over the music style, and it's not a church that fights over the, uh, how you vote. It's not that none of those things are important. They're all important, some more than others. <laughs> all of those decisions have weight and, and merit to what type of toilet paper you use or how you vote. Like Those are important decisions, and there are consequences for how you make them. But when we come together for fellowship, we need to adopt a mindset that says what's most important is the fact that Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, the color of our carpet doesn't matter. And when Jesus comes back, the kind of toilet paper we use doesn't matter. And when Jesus comes back, whose president doesn't matter. When Jesus comes back, the only thing that matters is the fact that we have eternal life in him. So we can fellowship together. We can have real relationships with one another. Regardless of these differences, regardless of the, the, the conversations that we have when we work through and make these decisions, we can still have fellowship with one another when we adopt an eternal focus. If you're seeing a trend, it's the fact that the gospel influences everything that we do together. Right? Our acceptance of the gospel and entrance into the kingdom of God, our common faith is what brings us together. And the fullness of the gospel and understanding that the fullness of the gospel includes an eternal focus is what drives us and, and impels us forward. We need to share a common faith and adopt an eternal focus. The third thing that we need to do is practice mutual encouragement. Practice mutual encouragement. Look with me in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The way that the, the writer of Hebrews talks about this reminds us of a very important truth. It's the fact that it's hard to have an eternal focus all the time. It's hard to keep our eyes fixed on the fact that Jesus is coming back because it's easy to get distracted by things that are a lot more immediate. Like it's hard to focus on the return of Christ and the glory and the hope and the life that we have in him when things come against us and happen to us that are painful. It is hard to have that eternal focus when, when the worries and the stresses and the anxiety of our life just threaten to overwhelm us. It's hard to have an eternal focus when you're looking at the things of the world and, and, and you, look at, you look at the things around us. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to want a better job with higher pay because you, you want more money, more disposable income. It's easy to get distracted by your finances and, and, and want to do better uh, on your retirement account. It's easy to get distracted by those things. It's easy to get distracted by, your, uh, by wanting a new car. Because people probably don't like your, the one you're in now. It doesn't, it's not much of a status symbol, and so you want a nicer car, so you show off a little bit. It's easy to get distracted by wanting a, a bigger house because our houses serve as status symbols for us and how we're doing and how well we have life together. And, uh, and we want to have a little bit better, a little bit bigger house to project this image of doing really well. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to, to want our kids to excel in sports or want our kids to excel in, in theater or, uh, or any other clubs that they're a part of so that we can, we can kind of brag about them to other parents and say, look how good my kid is doing. 
Like it's easy to get distracted by the things of the world. It is hard to keep our eyes focused on eternity, to keep our eyes focused on the return of Christ because everything else seems way more immediate than that. Everything else are things that we can see and feel and touch and those things seem way more important. What we need is encouragement and reminders to pick our eyes up and to put them back on Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews says in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We need to be thinking about how to encourage the people around us to pick their eyes up and to put them on Jesus. We don't come to church to get. We don't come to church for us. We come to church to think about and consider how we can lift up the people around us, how we can encourage them and spur them on to love, how we can encourage them and spur them on to good works, how we can encourage them to love the Lord more, how we can encourage them to love their spouse more, how we can encourage them to love their kids more and their friends and their family members more and their neighbors more, encourage them to love like Jesus loves them. We can, we can encourage them to do the things that God has called them to do, to put away sin, to put away brokenness, to put away the things that will never matter for all of eternity and to begin to do the things that God has called us to do. We need to think about and consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The gospel compels us to gather for one another. And that's not going to happen if we don't gather. You don't receive this message. You don't don't receive the encouragement to pick your eyes up on Jesus if you're not here. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need that encouragement. It is really hard to keep your eyes on Jesus. It's really hard to live the life that God has called you to live. It is really hard not to get distracted by the things around you. And so you need the encouragement and the uplifting of other believers who can pour into your life and point you to Jesus and fix your eyes on him. You need to gather That's why we gather in the first place. It's for this mutual encouragement with one another. It does not happen if we're not here. It does not happen if we don't gather. The Bible doesn't talk about being in church every Sunday, every time the door is open, every time on Wednesday night, every time on Sunday night, as if God's not going to love you if you don't come every week. The Bible doesn't say that at all. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are loved by God. You have eternal life in him, and whether you come to church or not is irrelevant to that fact. But the Bible does teach here in in Hebrews chapter 10 is that we desperately need community with other believers. We desperately need to gather for our sakes because it's hard to focus on eternity. It is hard to cling on to, to hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. It is hard to do that without the encouragement of other believers. So we have to gather. We have to make it a priority to be here. It also is not going to happen if we come to church and we approach church with a consumer mindset. If we walk into a church and say, what can this church do for me? 
And, and our approach to church is, is, you know, do I like the music or not? Do I like the sermon style or not? Do I, do, what, what, what do I like? What can I get out of it? That's a consumer mindset, and that is not one that's going to uh, practice mutual encouragement. It's the consumer mindset that allows us to stay home and watch a live stream of a church somewhere or to listen to the sermon on podcast because that's the same thing for us, right? We're going to get the message. We're going to listen to the music. We're going we're to be able to do what we, we, what we would do if we were here. That's a consumer mindset that says, what's in it for me? But that's not what the writer of Hebrews says we need to do when we gather. Our gathering is not about what's in it for you. Our gathering is not about what, whether you like something or not. Our gathering is not about you. The gathering is coming together as Christians, coming together as a body of believers, and considering how to love one another, how to stir one another to love and good deeds. Our gathering is all about considering and mutually encouraging one another so that when we gather, I can lift you up, you can lift me up, and together as the body of Christ, we are fixing our eyes on Jesus. A church full of consumers is a church that is not practicing fellowship. A church full of people that are in it for the entertainment factor or in it because of what they can get out of it is not a church that is practicing the fellowship that God is calling us to practice. We need to have biblical fellowship. That means sharing a common faith. That means adopting an eternal focus. That means practicing mutual encouragement. I, I don't know if I've told you the story yet or not, but when I was in high school, uh, and, and I played baseball in high school, in order to make the varsity team, you had to run a mile in under six and a half minutes. Uh, and that's completely arbitrary. Right? I don't, I, it has nothing to do with your skill as a baseball player. No idea why that was the rule, but that's the rule that the coach set. So you had to run a mile in under six and a half minutes to, to be eligible for varsity. Uh, and none of us ran. Right? None of us were runners. Uh, for me, in high school, like a mile was a really far distance to run because I never ran. I hated it. And so we, were all, we all dreaded the mile day, right? I mean, we were, we, you, you should see, I mean, we, would, we would finish our mile and just collapse like we'd run a marathon. I mean, it, was, it was brutal. But there was one guy, uh, one of my best friends, he actually was a runner. He ran distance races all the time and did really well. He would run three or four miles at a time at a fast pace, and it wouldn't, wouldn't break a sweat. And so he, he was very good at running. What he could have done is he could have gotten out there on mile day and just shown off. Right? He could have gotten out there and lapped us, probably, and, and finished with a, with a record time. But that's not what he did. He knew that that wouldn't help him, that wouldn't help anybody else. So what he decided to do is he would get a watch, and he'd set a timer. He told all of us, he said, I'm going to run at exactly a 6.30 pace. Make sure that you're with me or in front of me. And so what he would do is he would run the race, and he would bring the rest of us along with him. He would, he would encourage us, and he would give us something to look after, something to follow, and he'd bring us with him. And so most of us, if we were just on our own, would not have made a 630 mile. Right? Just running at what felt natural and, felt, and running at what felt normal, we would not have made it. But because he was there running at the pace that we were supposed to run, we were all together able to finish the mile and run it in under six and a half minutes. That is a perfect picture of our fellowship and what it's supposed to be like where we don't come to run laps around everybody else. We don't come to, to get uh, a spiritual high. We don't come to, to learn more about Jesus so that we're just better Christians. We come so that we can bring the rest of the church with us as we're following Jesus. We come to encourage one another, to spur one another on, and to lift each other's eyes up to the fact that Jesus is coming back so that we collectively as the body of Christ 
all run the race that God has called us to run. Our time of fellowship is important. It doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings, but it especially happens on Sunday mornings. We need to have this genuine, uh, you know, one of our one of our values is foster authentic community. We need to have this genuine, authentic community with one another that, that seeks to lift one another up and encourage each other. It means we have to start being open and honest with each other. We need to get past the surface-level relationships, the surface-level friendships, and, and really open up and explain where we're struggling. If, we're, if our community looks like turning around and saying, hey, really glad you're here this morning, that's not fellowship. <laughs> That's nice, it's friendly, it's welcoming. We definitely want to do that, but it's not fellowship. If our community looks like coming up to someone and saying, how are you doing? And they say, well, I'm doing really well, thanks for asking. But in the back of their mind, they're struggling. They're worried about their finances. Their home life is a wreck. That's not fellowship. It's being cordial. True biblical fellowship. It's being open and honest and real with each other, knowing where you're hurting so that we collectively can lift up each other's eyes and point each other to Jesus. We can mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. We can celebrate with those who are celebrating and we can all encourage and lift one another up. That's fellowship. That's what it looks like to be freedom fellowship. Have that, have that mutual encouragement with one another. Some of you here this morning need to take a, a, a tangible step. All of us need to grow in our relationship with the Lord. All of us need to grow in our fellowship. All of us need to practice being more open with each other and having more honest and genuine conversations with one another. And all of us need to practice getting rid of this consumer mindset that says, what's in it for me? And coming to church to encourage and uplift and to be encouraged and uplifted by those around us. We all need to do that. Some of us need to remove the mask. We've been wearing our entire time at church. This, this facade that says that we are, uh, we're all good and everything's fine and you don't, you don't need to worry about me, this, this radical American independence. We need to, to remove that facade and be open and honest and real with each other so we can encourage one another. Some of you need to do what the Bible says here, not neglect meeting together. Some of you need to recognize that you need to be here, that, that this is important for you, that this is necessary for your walk with the Lord. Some of you need to heed what the Bible says in Romans 10, 22. And, and the most important thing you can do this morning is not to attend church. The most important thing you can do this morning is not to have better friendships. The most important thing you can do this morning is enter in to relationship with God to receive eternal life from the Lord. Some of you need to become church members. You need to stop hopping from church to church and, and, and spiritual place to spiritual place and actually dig roots in and make the commitment to become members of Freedom Fellowship. Others of you may need to be baptized in obedience uh, to faith in the Lord. Having entered in, you need to be baptized. Every single one of us has a decision to make. Every single one of us has a life that we're supposed to live and a, a direction we're supposed to go. But some of you may have a specific decision you need to make this morning. Everybody bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here this morning, 
you want to make a specific decision. You want to become a member of Freedom Fellowship, you want to get baptized, uh, or you, you want to enter in for the very first time. If that's you this morning, I'm going to invite you, nobody looking around, no, everybody's eyes closed, I'm going to invite you to slip your hand up. If that's you and you want to make a specific decision this morning, you just slip your hand up. If that's you, you want to make a decision this morning, you want to become a member, you want to be baptized, or you want to place your faith in Jesus, I'm going to be up at front after the service. And I would love for you to just come and talk to me about the decision that you want to make this morning. All of the rest of us are called by God to really engage in fellowship, to have a real relationship with one another, to come to church to mutually edify and uplift and encourage one another. Every single one of us needs to pick our eyes up and focus on Jesus. Let me pray for us as we do that. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would, you would give us the boldness to keep our eyes on you no matter what happens in this life. That you would give us the strength to focus on you when, when things in this world are so distracting. Father, we pray that we would be a church that, that is rooted and grounded on a common faith that comes together with an with a eternal focus. And, and that we would be a church that gathers for the mutual encouragement of one another. That this would be a real fellowship marked by love for one another and care for one another and joy of being in one another's presence. We pray that we would really, truly be Freedom Fellowship. We really would be a family of faith living for eternity today. We love you and praise you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.